Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Scott Cooper, the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the leading venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. He has been with the firm since its founding in 2009 and has overseen its rapid growth from three employees to over 150 and from 300 million in assets under management to over 12 billion. I consider Scott one of the leading experts in corporate governance for venture-backed companies. In fact, he is a co-founder and co-director of the Stanford Directors College for Venture-Backed Company Directors, which is how we met since I'm one of the other co-founders of that program, which we jointly launched in 2013. Scott served as chairman of the board of the National Venture Capital Association between 2017 and 2018. Today, he's the chairman of the board of Genesis Works, the vice chair of the investment committee of St. Jude's Children's Cancer Research Hospital, and he also serves as a member of the investment committees for Stanford Medical Center, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, and Lick Wilmerding High School. In addition, Scott is an executive in residence at Haas School of Business and Berkeley Law School and a lecturer at Stanford Law School. He is the author of the national best-selling book, Secrets of Sentinel Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It, which I totally recommend everyone to read if interested in venture capital. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast with colleagues or friends. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast, including show notes and reference materials at www.boardroom-governance.com. Scott, it's great to have you in our podcast. It is a pleasure to see you in this time. It is, you know, hard times. We are going through coronavirus. There's a lot of uh, racial disparities, uh, a bit of a crazy situation in the country. Uh, first of all, congrats on your uh, new fund, the Talent and Opportunity Fund. I think it's a great initiative from Andreessen. I find you, you guys are always doing uh, great initiatives in diversity and inclusion. So, you know, how have you been? I mean, th- this is a little bit of a crazy situation. Well, Evan, first of all, yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, congratulations on the your your new role, which is very exciting. We haven't seen Thank each you. other since, uh, since yeah. your new job. But um yeah, look, I think it's, uh, as you said, look, it's, uh, it, you know, there's uh, so many things going on. Obviously, we started this, of course, uh, a couple months ago with coronavirus. And as you can imagine, you know, as a venture investor, most of our time and energy was spent with our existing companies mm-hmm. and trying to figure out, okay, you know, how much direct impact would they have? What would that mean in terms of particularly kind of their cash runway, since obviously so many of these companies are highly dependent upon financing markets in order to be able to, to thrive and survive. And so we did a lot of that. I would say the good news is, uh, you know, you're never done with this stuff, but I'd say we're we're well through that uh, for the most part now. Where most of the companies have kind of figured out, okay, what do I think the impact is? What am I going to do about it? Do I need to raise money? And and many people have raised money already. So, you know, if this is a you know three, six, nine month thing, I think most companies at least have figured out a way to kind of manage their way through it. If this turns out to be the beginning of a you know two five year you know uh, you know economic depression, which obviously none of us know then certainly, you know, there'll be a lot of work to be done for sure. No doubt about that. Yeah. Okay. So so maybe let's start, you know, with your origin story and, and maybe let's go back in your professional career until until we get to Andreessen. But maybe, you know, you, you were an investment banker, you worked in companies, maybe give us that background. Yeah, sure. I'll give you the very quick background. So I, uh, uh, I intended to be a lawyer, uh, as you know, uh, like you, I went to law school and, uh, and then I got this itch while I was in law school that I kind of found I liked the business side of transactions more than I did kind of the legal side of transactions. So 
Uh, luckily, I was able to kind of leave law school and go into an investment banking job um, first at the firm formerly known as Lehman Brothers now, and then at Credit Suisse First Boston. So it was a lucky time because uh, I kind of came out of school right as the tech market was really building up. So this was 96, 97. And, uh, you know, obviously, we know how that ended in the, the 2000 timeframe, but it was definitely a great time to be a banker because there was incredible learning. And then what happened was I just got randomly introduced to Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. They started a company called LoudCloud in 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can talk more about kind of what that was. But um, uh, I got randomly introduced to them. And, you know, uh, somebody said to me, hey, would you like to meet Mark Andreessen? And I said, yeah, if this is, you know, obviously an IQ test, I will definitely not fail this IQ test. Uh, so I took the opportunity to meet him and, uh, you know, kind of joined the company literally a couple months later. And, you know, we had an incredible roller coaster ride because we raised money at one of the all-time great times to raise money, which was 1999. And then, of course, we had to live through what was one of the all-time worst times uh, of the post.com collapse. Uh, but we eventually made it through. That company got sold to Hewlett Packard in 07. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we started talking about this, Andreessen Horowitz, and started that in 09. And now we're uh, almost 11 years. Actually, uh, later this month will be 11 years for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's been a great ride. We're managing about $12 billion today, roughly. And, uh, you know, it's been an amazingly fun experience and a fun time to be an adventure investor. Yeah. And and one thing I have to say that Andreessen has always, since inception, been kind of an innovator in the venture capital space. And, and even now you've kind of switched kind of your investment uh, advisor category. I mean, this is something really interesting from, you know, just a venture capital proposition to what is available out there and what you can invest. So, you know, maybe can you can you tell us a little bit about that kind of focus and and why that the shift and and you know what's behind that? Absolutely. So um, let me take you back one step, which is uh, just so we can explain it to the listeners. Is we started the firm uh, with basically one investment thesis in mind. Uh, Mark Andreessen wrote this editorial many years ago in the Wall Street Journal called "Software is Eating the World." That mm-hmm. you know today obviously sounds pretty commonplace. That you know ten years ago it wasn't that obvious that software was going to be the defining kind of uh, technology feature that it has become. Uh, And so that's been our defining thesis for the last 11 years. You know, if I were betting today, I would say probably for the next 20 years, that's how we're going to invest. And what that's meant for us, therefore, is as we see great entrepreneurs doing things with software in areas that might we might not have thought would have been incredible investment opportunities, we we think our job is meet those entrepreneurs, understand what they're doing, and then allow them to kind of almost take us into these new vertical areas. And then we have to do the work to say, okay, does the intersection of that vertical area with software actually make for a good business investment opportunity? And so I give you that background because part of the reason why we made this change in our regulatory status uh, was uh, we had been uh, kind of doing stuff in and around the crypto space for a number of years, uh, going back uh, to 2013 when we made an investment at an early stage in Coinbase. And uh, my partner, Chris Dixon, has been did that investment, has been involved in the area. And we started to see kind of in, you know, 16, 17, 18, a real pickup in terms of the critical mass of entrepreneurs saying, I really think this crypto thing is interesting. And I want to basically devote my entrepreneurial life to, you know, figuring out how to actually build something interesting here. So it turns out there's an interesting nuance in the venture capital rules that came out of the Dodd-Frank legislation that say, if you for you to be technically regulated as a venture capital firm, which is a lighter form of regulation from the SEC, um, basically 80% of your, all of the investments you do have to be in what are called qualified investments, which basically means you have to invest in normal securities that are issued by you know companies, basically, right? Primary issuances of equity securities. Um, 
The problem with crypto, as you well know, is we don't really know what these things are, quite frankly. Right, uh, right. You know, there's arguments about whether they're securities. Uh, you know, we believe most of these are not securities, but it's pretty clear that they are probably not, in most cases, fall under that definition. Um, so the long and short of it was when we raised that fund, we said in order for us to be able to do that, we need to register that fund as what's called an RIA, right, which you're familiar with, which basically, you know, is kind of the same regulation that hedge funds and mutual funds are registered under because we no longer qualified for that definition. So we did that and we ran it basically for the last two years. We essentially ran kind of two separate organizations. We had the crypto fund kind of walled off as its own regulated entity. And then we had all the other entries in Horowitz stuff as normal under the normal venture capital rules. And what we found, not surprisingly, is it defeated the purpose at the end of the day for why we wanted to do crypto, which is we felt like crypto is not its own little standalone thing, but it's actually you know part and parcel of this broader software thesis that we've had. And therefore, to be able to have the crypto team talk to our financial services team or talk to Mark Andreessen and Ben about changes that are happening, it was just inefficient for us to be able to do that by effectively having two you know, completely separate regulatory and walled off organizations. So we took the step last year to basically just register the entire firm as a registered investment advisor, which certainly has additional costs for us on the regulatory side and additional rules that we have to comply with. But we felt like it was actually the right thing to do to enable us to achieve the outcomes. And so it's a long story, but basically I think the way to think about what we did is we don't do anything differently than we have always done, which is our we're still a venture capital firm. Uh, we still invest in early stage companies and try to find these great entrepreneurs who are doing amazing stuff. What this allows us to do is because we've changed our regulatory structure, it just gives us more degrees of freedom to do things like crypto or to do different types of assets over time other than equity assets. So, you know, in theory, you know, we could do things like credit assets if you wanted to and other stuff. So we think this just gives us a bigger opportunity to solve the main kind of goal we had as a company, which is if we can kind of be the most attractive firm to all the best technology entrepreneurs who are doing something really cool and cutting edge with software, then, you know, like we ought to basically make sure we're set up as an organization to be able to take advantage of that. No, that's that's great. And I'm very excited about this uh, crypto space, particularly to talk to you about governance of crypto. Yes. Okay, good. I haven't talked about uh, with anyone on crypto and governance, and it doesn't really mix uh, in the traditional scope of corporate governance and crypto governance. So I'm really excited in, in a bit to to touch on this. As, as, so, so let's start with, you know, the first thing I, I got to say is that you, you wrote this book called Secrets of Sand Hill Road, which is an excellent book on venture capital, on how to raise money for entrepreneurs. Uh, I think it's it's a great resource. I encourage every reader, if they're interested in venture capital or corporate governance and startups, this is the book to read. And, and one of the things that I like is that you actually spend four chapters in governance. And, and so I don't think there's any other venture capital book that has four chapters on governance. And so you have one, which is the alphabet soup of term sheets, which is you separate in economics and governance. Then you have uh, a chapter on board members and the good housekeeping seal of approval. And then you talk about Entrados, which is a, a case with deals with uh, mergers and the duties of directors and difficult financings, which is uh, duties of directors in down rounds or recaps. So this is a, a really interesting side of, of the book. And, and I think we, we're going to touch on a few things. So the first one is you talk about distinctions between public and private boards uh, and, and you pinpoint three differences, right? You, you, you talk about board composition, about the impact of protective provisions and the impact of other terms such as anti-dilution protections and liquidation preferences. I think this is a very interesting way to 
make clear what are the distinctions and what is the role of the board. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with different experts talking about distinctions, but this is a concrete way. So maybe why don't you tell us about these three areas and how you see the distinctions between private and public in this context? Absolutely. And actually, I'll tell you a funny story about the governance related stuff was uh, I had a wonderful publisher for this book. But the one I wouldn't say argument, but the one disagreement we had was whether this stuff was too dry and 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 we should take it out, quite frankly. And it's very funny, even from, uh, I will say this, even from non-lawyers, I get probably most amount of feedback on those chapters because, to your point, nobody ever talks about this stuff. Right. So it was definitely unique. So I'm glad at least we held our ground and made sure those got in the book. Good. Um, Great. So yeah, look, I think public versus private is a huge issue. So I think the most foundational piece, and, and you mentioned this, is the nature of how the board composition gets developed, right? And so Basically, in the venture world, the way it works is, you know, typically if I, as Andreessen Horowitz, am investing in a round, I'm going to basically ask for a contractual right to essentially be a part of the board of directors. And it's completely different, obviously, in the public company context. Of course, you know, there are, you know, we have things like, you know, you know, the, I guess the closest scenario would be an activist investor, right, who comes into a public company and as part of the investment they're making, you know, kind of is effectively trying to uh, have some more governance influence on the company by taking a board seat. But, you know, you don't have all the rules around independence, of course, that you have in public companies. You know, we don't have to worry about financial experts and other stuff like that. And so you do get this kind of weird uh, board composition, which is the boards basically get do dominated by, you know, the founders themselves. Uh, and then ultimately they get kind of selectively kind of, you know, uh, grown through, you know, rounds of financing where board seats get attached, you know, attached to that. That's kind of thing number one, and we can talk about some of the changes that are happening there. Thing number two is what you mentioned is, look, we we have this weird role, and there's a whole, of course, body of law around it. And you and I have talked about this. I, you know, I teach a class on this around around this dual fiduciary concept that comes as a result of this, right? Which is, I as Andreessen Horowitz and sitting on the board, I'm supposed to be on that board to look out for the common shareholders, and clearly that's my fiduciary duty. At the same time, I'm a general partner of Andreessen Horowitz, and I'm holding a different security than the common shareholders, right? I've got right. a preferred class of stock that has, as you mentioned, protective provisions or anti-dilution or liquidation preferences. And so there are all these weird you know, scenarios where my interests as a GP at Andreessen Horowitz can potentially diverge from my fiduciary duties as, you know, to the common shareholders. And it's just a very weird dynamic. And you know, every now and then in a public company, you might have uh, you know, a... Um, you know, preferred shareholder, but it's pretty unusual. Most people at the end of the day are holding the exact same security. And so their economic interests are completely aligned. Um, so I think that's the, that's those two things make for a really, really interesting dynamic. I think the third dynamic um, to me, that's really interesting and which is a big sea change in the industry over the last 10 or 12 years is the kind of composition of the boards relative to common versus preferred shareholders. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at venture capital, kind of, you know, if you took a broad brush and said, okay, like from 1970s to maybe early 2000s, what did boards look like? They probably looked like, you know, a founder or two, uh, but the majority of the board was either the venture investors, the preferred investors, or in some cases, and, and was sprinkled in with some independence, right? But essentially, the the preferred investors typically would have more board votes board votes excuse me than would common that has really completely flipped in the last 10 or 15 years where most of these boards now are dominated by the common shareholders you typically have more common shareholders which is essentially the founders right as you know and that sets up a third dynamic which is okay you have the fundamental role of the board or a fundamental role of course is hiring or firing the ceo now you have a scenario where the CEO, often as founder, 
controls more of the board. And so therefore, it raises this third interesting question, which is, okay, like, how does a board function uh, in an area where, you know, for the most part, board votes around things like the CEO are somewhat predetermined by the time they start, in the sense that it's very hard to expect a CEO or founder to effectively vote against themselves, uh, you know, to the extent they decide that they're no longer the right person. So all kinds of issues that are raised that we can probably dive into. Yeah, no, and, and, and this is exactly, I mean, as you said, you, you, you probably teach a full class on this. Uh, you know, I, I've taught a lot about, about these issues and, and we can go really deep on them. Uh, so may, maybe let me ask you about specific things. Um, you know, in your book, when you talk about the role of the board, some of the duties, uh, you, you, you talk about VC-specific roles. And one of them is open the network of the VC to the CEO. And one of the things that I find interesting about Andreessen is that you actually took an approach to this help in a very different direction. You have a big network. You know, maybe talk about how, you know, what inspired Andreessen to do it and, and, and how is it different to the typical venture capital firm? Absolutely, yeah. So look, the, the, the founding of the firm was basically around this idea of, could we take kind of technical product-based founders, many of whom, quite frankly, might be first-time you know, founders and CEOs or, or certainly very early in their, in their professional careers, and could we surround them with the people and the network and the relationships that would enable them to hopefully become the long-term CEOs for the business? And um, you know, obviously, um, you know, we can debate kind of non-economic issues on this, but if you look at from an economic perspective, many of the most successful technology companies over time were led or had, or still are led by founder, you know, basically product technical founders, right? So you go all the way back, of course, to the original IBM or the original Hewlett Packard, you know, even, you know, Microsoft, of course, and Oracle. And then, of course, today, you've got, of course, companies like Amazon and others uh, that are led by their founders. So the basic thesis of the firm was, okay, we think that type of founder is really interesting. The question is, will they be able to grow into that long-term CEO role and be able to build a big company? Or Will we find that you know they're just not capable of doing so because they may not have that skill set? So the whole firm was designed around what could we do to kind of increase the likelihood of that particular individual becoming the long-term CEO. So to fast forward to today, as you mentioned, we have about 185 employees of the firm, which in and of itself is pretty unusual for a venture firm. And about 100 of those 185 work kind of post-investment uh, with our uh, CEOs and founders. And I won't go into all the details, but the basic idea is, okay, what does a relatively inexperienced CEO not know? Well, she probably doesn't know um, all the buyers of technology that she can sell to at Goldman Sachs or at, you know, kind of University of California or whatever the case may be. And so if we as Andreessen Horowitz can build that relationship and that set of buyers and business development partners and kind of plug our CEO into that relationship, those relationships... That ought to help her improve, you know, kind of the growth of the company, her skill sets around sales and business development, and over time, you know, allow it to become a big uh, organization. Same yeah. Thing, same thing on talent, right? So, you know, she may know five engineers to work with, but she doesn't know 10,000 engineers who could go grow in the company. So if we can basically build relationships with engineers and then say to those engineers, hey, here's this really cool company. You may want to check it out. It's consistent with the, the types of things you've told us you're interested in then we can help augment their recruiting pipeline. And so we've done a number of things in a number of areas, but that's the basic framework. And so, you know, when I talk in the book about the idea of a board member opening up their network to the company, we absolutely believe in that. What we've tried to do, though, at Andrews and Horowitz is basically institutionalize the network. Right. So for hopefully for an entrepreneur who takes money from us, it doesn't matter at the end of the day if it's Ben Horowitz who sits on your board or Martin Casado or, you know, kind of Connie Chan. The point is, 
the relationships are managed at the holistic firm level. And so, you know, you ought to be able to plug into that network and get the benefit of it at a much more institutional scale. That's, uh, I think that's really interesting. And and I think you, of course, as a firm uh, are known for that. Um, you know, another thing that you mentioned in your book is that you say that a critical scaling limiter for VC funds is the number of board seats that any particular GP can handle. And you give this rule of thumb of 10 and from 10 to 12 board seats. Now, this is a massive difference to public boards where if you sit on over three boards, you can say right. yeah, it's overboarding and it's bad practice. You know, where does that rule of thumb come from and how do you think about that? Well, it's funny because actually we were having a discussion at our Monday meeting this week on this. Mm -hmm. uh, as with all rules of thumb, I think uh, we're finding that, that that rule of thumb is being violated uh, in many places. In fact, you know, we have a number of our uh, number of our GPs who are higher than that number already. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so, look, I think... You know, it's a it's a colloquialism, and and again, you know, as with all, has has probably no real uh, bearing. But when you start to add it up, you kind of say, okay, look, there is some limit at which you say, okay, how can I be valuable to this company? How 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 much can I spread my time essentially over things? And um, you know, I don't know if it's ten or twelve or it's fifteen. I think our view at the firm is we ought to whatever the number is, we ought to be able to be on the very high end of that number because we have this kind of hundred person engagement mm -hmm. model with our with our portfolio companies where you know, every interaction with a company doesn't have to flow through the GP, right? So, you know, a company doesn't need, you know, Katie Hahn, who's on our crypto team, they don't need her to, you know, kind of make every introduction or help them on every issue, because we we kind of onboard all of our companies in a way where they're directly interacting with this 100-person team. And so we try to kind of, you know, make sure that we get a lot of leverage out of the GP model. So, I think we're, I think we're going to find that we can hopefully operate on the, on the high end or even above that 10 to 12 number. Um, the other thing to think about is the role of a board member and the time commitment varies very significantly depending upon kind of in the stage of the company. And this is another thing I think that's probably different between the public and the private company context, right? So my guess is if you were to survey, and you probably have this data since all the work you've done in this area, if you were to survey public board members and ask them, give me a pie chart of your time allocation, my guess is, I don't know what the number is, but let's just call it 75 plus percent of their time is on, you know... Uh, you know, compliance and or regulatory related issues on the board, right? So, you know, maybe they sit on the audit committee, or maybe they sit on the comp committee, or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're dealing with, you know, kind of just legal governance and making sure the company is doing the right things. And probably, you know, I don't know what the number is, but probably relatively small amount of time on like actual business strategy and things of that sort. Uh, and that's, and that's not a criticism, by the way, I think that's, that's probably the right time allocation for a public company board. In the private company context, number one, at the very early stage, the board, you know, as a board really isn't doing that much other than making sure that, you know, the company is obviously kind of, you know, hopefully being managed and governed in an appropriate way. But most of the board meetings are, you know, how are you doing on progress on product development, right? How are you doing on hiring with the company? How are you doing, you know, with initial interactions with customers? And, you know, those are not, you know, those don't not take time, but I would say they don't take the types of the type of time and overhead and all the stuff that requires if I'm sitting on a, you know, the Facebook public company audit committee, right, and I've got, you know, probably reading hundreds of pages of documents every time I go to a board meeting and having, you know, multi-hour meetings. So I think that changes also the nature a little bit. And that's, I think, kind of where this number, if you've got 10 early stage companies, you might find that that's, you know, you could do 10 more. If you've got 10 pre-IPO companies, you know, you're going to start to see, obviously, that your time commitment is going to shift in those areas that will probably obviously limit your scalability to a certain extent. 
Yeah. Well, we've had a guest in, in, in this podcast. Well, David Beattie, you, you may remember him from yeah. Toronto. And, and yeah. he divided, you know, like uh, you have uh, hindsight, you have oversight, and you have foresight. And <laughs> in public companies, right, they've spent most of the time in hindsight and oversight and not so much on foresight, which if you think of the private company, it's mostly foresight. You know, let's exactly think right. about... Yeah. You know, and and I think his research with McKinsey was that you know board spent only twenty percent on foresight, and as you, so your guess okay, was so my very 20, much my twenty-five yeah. was pretty good. All right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. So so good, uh, Scott. Um, you know, another topic I talk a lot about in this podcast is dual class shares, yep. and and you know this is huge because and and I seem a little bit obsessed because every guest <laughs> we end up talking about dual class shares, but I think it's an interesting concept. It's specifically a governance concept. You talk in your book that you see very little of this in private companies. It's rare, but the ones that you see are founders with high voting shares plus a proxy voting. Uh, meaning that you know the investors hand the voting authority of their shares to the founders, and in other cases you see uh, springing dual class uh, share structures, yep. which you know they spring into dual class once you do an IPO. What do you think about dual class, and and how do you think about this in in your in your position? Yeah, so l- let me talk about it both in the public and the private company context. So in the public company context, and we've been public about this, so uh, you know I'm not speaking out of turn here. We, we support dual class. We've also said we support dual class that does not create, you know, dynastic legacies, basically. And what we mean by that is, you know, a lot of the discussion today, of course, is around sunset provisions and under what circumstances would that dual class effectively fade away. Um, but we, we do support it and, and we support it particularly in a very special case, which is we particularly support it where we have kind of the founder still operating as the CEO of the company. And if you remember, you know, as I talked about a few minutes ago, this really goes back to the origin of the firm, which is we believe that special things can happen when you can enable a founding CEO to be able to be the long-term CEO for the business. And that doesn't mean that they all work, and it doesn't mean that there aren't people who might you know, exhibit bad behavior and, and obviously you know, kind of need to be removed. But we like the idea of kind of giving longer kind of lead time and longer kind of rope to somebody and understand that because technology companies are product cycle companies, there are things in the public markets where there are investments that that CEO might want to make in the future generation of a product cycle that could be near-term depressive to earnings per share, for example, uh, but that we think you know we want to give the benefit of the doubt to that CEO, uh, that mm-hmm. founder CEO. So we've been very supportive of that, but we also, again, uh, do recognize that look, there are obviously you know broad governance issues that we have to think about, and so that's why we do think sunsets you know certainly important in the private company context. At least our experience, uh, I think, and, and I don't know if it's indicative, the reason why I don't think we see quite as much dual class in the private company, uh, other than those few kind of, you know, use cases I mentioned, is if you go back to kind of the board discussion we were just having, right, which is, look, in what we do see in private companies today is the vast majority of companies have common controlled boards, okay. right? Yeah. And common, of course, you know, in this case, effectively think of that as founders, right? So yeah. typical board today might be a five-person board where the founder has a seat, but basically controls two other seats, and maybe they put somebody in, maybe they don't. And then maybe after two rounds of financing, you now have two venture folks. So from a from a balance of power perspective, the board is kind of three to two in that case in favor of common. Mm-hmm. And so I think the reason why you see less of the uh, of dual class in private companies is number one is most of the important things are board votes. And at the end of the day, obviously, the common shareholders effectively control the board. Mm-hmm. Two is also early on in the days, you know, 
you know, the founder and the common shareholders, of course, hopefully own a significant portion of the company, you know, depending obviously on how much dilution they've taken. And so anything that does require a common vote or a combined common plus preferred vote, in general, those are, you know, the founders and, you know, are going to effectively be able to kind of control the outcome of that vote. And so there's lesser of a need, I think, therefore, for dual class than you might have in a public company context where, hey, now I've been diluted down as a founder. You know, I might only own 4%, 5%, maybe 10% of the company if I'm lucky. And so, you know, every vote, you know, kind of, you know, I no longer really have quite the same influence that I used to. So I think that's why you see right. the, the, the bifurcation between the two. It doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have similar challenges, obviously, in the governance side and the private company side. But I just think the need for dual class is mit- mitigated by board control plus the dominance of common shares by the founders, which therefore means they can affect control without essentially having to have dual class. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And, you know, another practice that I've seen is uh, founders having more than one vote as a board member, yep. Yep. right? And th- that's another flavor of, 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 right. this, of, of this control. Uh, you know, another, uh, you know, topic that you've written that is in the similar context is, is you wrote an article for Barron's about rethinking what's fair in corporate governance, and you touched on the topic of tenure voting. Can you explain what that is and what it does? Yeah. So the basic idea behind tenure voting, uh, which, by the way, just to be clear, was not my idea. This is many many academic proposals, so I don't want to to unfairly take credit, (laughs) nor nor maybe I shouldn't be maligned for it either. but, uh, But the basic idea behind tenure voting is that think of it as the longer you hold the shares, you accrue more voting power over time, right? So if I'm a you know, public market investor, and I want to flip in and out of the stock on a daily basis, or if I'm, you know, Vanguard, and I'm holding these shares in an S&P 500 index for 10 years, uh, the argument of of 10-year-based voting is, look, that Vanguard shareholder probably should have more say in the governance of the company than the person who's flipping in and out. And so the idea is literally, we all start at the same, we all start with one vote, but, you know, I can accrue voting time as my tenure in the, as a shareholder grows. And, you know, anybody who obviously, you know, comes in and out of the stock, they just they they stick at that one vote thing. So it has the same net effect of dual class in the sense that you have at some point in time you will have high vote and low vote shareholders. The reason why I think it's interesting is to me it's both more democratic than dual class and it's also um, uh, more consistent with you know you know long term orientation, which I do think is important. So the democratic piece is often what happens in dual class, as you know, right, is when a company goes public all the existing shareholders on T minus one day of going public get the dual class shares. Mm-hmm. And then everybody in perpetuity in the public markets never gets the dual class share. So it doesn't matter if I'm fidelity and holding the shares for a long time. I'm always at a disadvantage governance wise relative to the pre- people who existed pre IPO. Um, that's kind of, And so at least, you know, uh, it's, it's more democratic in that respect, at least to have a tenure system because it's open to all. And then the second reason why I like it is I do like the idea that, uh, I believe in the idea of long-term shareholders, and I do believe that you know, kind of, someone who is a long-term shareholder probably you know ought to have more ability to influence the direction of the company than somebody who is just you know maybe you know trying to flip the stock. So that's how we think about it. Um, you know, the honest answer, as you probably know, is it's a really interesting academic concept, and I do like it. I would say, from a pure policy perspective, most of the conversations I have with you know kind of large institutional shareholders is. They kind of still feel like it's a little bit more complicated, and they don't love it uh, to be right. completely frank. But right. my hope, my hope was to offer it at least as you know, kind of one other tool in the tool chest, as opposed to this very blunt thing. Dual class to me is just a very blunt tool. 
Um, and this to me, again, feels like at least tries to be more, you know, kind of malleable in terms of addressing a broader share shareholder constituency. No, you're right. And, and, and this is exact. I mean, it, it tries to solve the problem of the long term versus short term uh, constraints, which is a big difference between private markets and public markets. And dual clause is one tool and, and tenure is another uh, you've uh, well, the firm has invested in the long-term stock exchange, uh, yeah. which is w- another attempt to solve this. Uh, c- can you say something about them? And I, th- I think the premise is a little bit exactly on this idea that companies should go public in an environment where they can focus on the long term and not be affected by you know short-term pressures from activists or other you know short sellers or quarterly pressures so th- I, I feel that that's an interesting experiment and I think you and I have talked about it and I've known about you know Eric Reese and his mm-hmm. venture but m- maybe you can tell us more about that yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about it. In full disclosures, you mentioned, you know, we're a shareholder. We're right. a relatively small shareholder, but we are yeah. a shareholder. And uh, and uh, I'll do my best. Eric Eric, uh, Eric will do a much better job of explaining it to you. But the basic idea that Eric and team have is exactly what you said, which is uh, we, we would like to be able to support an environment where we have better alignment between the long-term interests of the shareholders and the long-term interests of the management team. And their their premise is that sometimes those diverge, right? Because you know, it's some of the things we talked about, right? Maybe an activist comes in and says, hey, you know, in the short term, I think we could cut these things or we could do these things. And that might be better for the, for the uh, you know, for the existing shareholders, but does it create long-term kind of competitive pressure for the company that might be, you know, kind of less valuable for long-term shareholders? So Eric's basic idea, and I forget exactly where they are right now, but they have a public, it's public, they have an application out to the SEC to effectively mm-hmm. actually build, become a new exchange, right? So they would they would sit alongside NYSE and Nasdaq and the other you know kind of exchanges that are out there, and you could list on their exchange. I believe the way they've done it also is that you could also be you could also list on Nasdaq and NYSE as well. So you're not kind of exclusively in their thing. But the idea would be that um, when you do the listing on their on their platform, that you kind of lay out you know let's call it a contractual view of how, what does long term mean to us, right? And so maybe that means on the management side, we're not going to get paid based upon you know kind of stock options that vest, you know, every six months or six or five months or whatever, or maybe, you know, maybe they are, have 10 year vests, for example, or maybe we should tie them to other, you know, we should tie grants of shares to things other than, you know, EPS performance. It could be a broader set of goals, including things like ESG, which, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on in our conversation today. Uh, so the idea is the management team kind of lays out their stuff and then the shareholders, uh, you know, uh, kind of basically can buy into those contractual, you know, promises. Uh, and in doing so, um, the idea then also is that uh, he's introduced things like tenure voting, which is that for the shareholders who do kind of buy into that, they ought to also accrue more governance and more control over the organization with time. So the whole basic framework is basically to try to, you know, kind of define what the characteristics are, make sure everybody buys in, and then also have an economic model around employee and management compensation that aligns with the interests of long-term shareholders as well. Yeah, no, and I, and I think that's a very interesting premise that is based on corporate governance principles of just long term versus short term, and and I, I think I'm I'm looking at that as a, as a very interested, you know, observer. Um, you know, if we go back to these fiduciary duties of directors and and uh, with the, these dual fiduciary duties and venture back companies, you know, now we are entering in a market where arguably it's going to be we're going to see lo- many down rounds. Uh, we're going to see valuations yep. that are going to go down. So, what would be your one to three 
top recommendations for directors in terms of thinking about this and particularly to VC directors because you know when we started the directors college for venture back company directors we realized that the they didn't really know that their duties were to the common right there was a kind of a a lack of understanding and maybe you know it's part of historical your book does a very good service in in laying it out there and saying look this is what it is and how Delaware courts think about it and what the law is and and practice changes. So maybe what are your one, two, three top yeah. recommendations? Yeah. So look, I think the big things to think about. So let's take down rounds maybe as mm-hmm. a great example. So mm-hmm. I, I, I hope you're wrong, which is I hope we don't have a lot of down rounds, right. but obviously, you know, who knows based upon the environment we're in. The biggest uh, area that I think people uh, need to think about is what I, what I would call the no good deed goes unpunished uh, mm-hmm. uh, portion of down rounds, which is I'm a sitting director on the company. I'm a venture capitalist in the company. And, you know, basically everyone thinks this company is dead and nobody's going to, nobody wants to fund it. And so, you know, I, I believe in the company. And so I decide I'm going to go out of pocket, you know, from my, from my funds and put money in this thing. Uh, but obviously I'm going to do it at a valuation that obviously I believe reflects what the market reality is. And so it's the reason it's the no good deed goes unpunished is look at the time. Uh, you know, I'm doing what I think is a good thing, which is it has financial value to my LPs, and it also allows the company, obviously, to hopefully achieve their outcomes. Um, you know, the problem, of course, with that is, you know, if the company turns out to be great, what happens three, five years down the line to all those shareholders who were diluted, obviously, by that transaction? And so, you know, that's kind of thing number one to think about. And I'd say, I think my best advice to kind of, you know, boards of directors in those scenarios is just assume that, you know, now that we have some legal case around it, just assume that you're going to be reviewed under kind of the, you know, what, as you know, the entire fairness doctrine, right? You're going to, you're going to be held to the highest standard. Um, Whether you think your board is conflicted or not, I just think it's a good working assumption. And the good news is, look, there's a lot of things we can do to mitigate that risk, right? We can go make sure the board notes and the board records reflect all the conversations we had. Uh, We can make sure that we, you know, do things like a, a uh, you know kind of a, a go shop provision right where we allow the company to take our term sheet and go see if somebody else wants to do something different. Uh, we can do things like rights offerings right that you know right where we can kind of say okay you know every shareholder in the company no matter whether you're common or preferred should get an opportunity to invest on the exact same terms. And so I think the good news is there's plenty of things we can do. I think the problem is and I don't I don't think it's it's partly an educational problem. It's also partly that look you know, things are stressful and we're trying to do what we think is the best interest of the company. And we're like, wow, like these things come together in short order. And so we often just don't have a record that demonstrates the kind of actual level of governance we should have done. So I think that's thing number one to really think about. I think the other thing to think about, which is, of course, you know, the facts, as you know, of the of the Trados case is, I think, you know, um, anytime you've got a deal where a, a, an acquisition of the company where you know, you're going to be at or around, let's just call it the total liquidation preference amount. I think, again, everybody's antenna should go up and, you know, people should say, okay, great. Like, you know, this is the kind of thing that is likely to be scrutinized. And again, you know, what can we do to fix it? Well, we know there's a ton of process stuff we can do to fix it, but making sure at least that, you know, that the board at least has the conversations around, okay, we understand the fiduciary duties. We're making informed decisions about, you know, management incentive plans. We're making informed decisions about who's contributing to those managed incentive plans and incentive plans. Um, I think those are all very doable and reasonable things that boards can do. I just think sometimes either people aren't educated or quite frankly, you know, kind of the time horizon in which these things come together makes it very difficult to, to, uh, you know, kind of, document and and make a make you know make as clear as you can kind of your rationale and your thinking behind the process there 
No, I, I think that's great. And, you know, sometimes, you know, there's all these measures you can take to cleanse the transaction. So, for example, you, you could form a special committee, but then the problem is, do you actually have real right. independent directors? Right. Are, they, are they actually doing the job of reviewing the, the, the terms? Do they understand, you know, the terms? And, and, and this, I think, is more challenging. So, you know, talking about that, I mean, the scrutiny over independent directors has become larger, particularly in those scenarios. Do you think the role of independent directors has changed at all in, in the last 11 years or, or not? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I will say, sadly, from my perspective, I think the predominance of independent directors in venture companies, I, I don't know if this is factually true, but I would bet if you plotted it, I bet there are fewer independent directors certainly as a percentage of board composition today than there were probably 10 or 12 years ago. And I don't know that that's a legal or regulatory issue that basically people got scared out of being independent directors. I think it's a function of this growth of kind of more common and controlled boards and, and just in general, in general, kind of more of this view towards common shareholders and, and founders having much more governance control of the company. And so uh, even though independence, you know, might be positive in that respect, I think in some cases they do threaten that balance, uh, that balance of power. So yeah, I, I think I would I would love to see more independent directors generally. Um, and quite frankly, you know, look, one thing the VC community hasn't done a good job either is should the VC community consider not having contractual obligations to appoint board seats all the time, or should they effectively, you know, uh, you know, be be inclined to bring in more independent directors in the end, as opposed to them having the seat directly in the venture firm. Now, mm -hmm. nobody's really done that yet today, but I think it's a fair question for people to ask. So yeah, look, I would like to see more independent directors um, generally. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, my sense is we really don't see much of that happening unless and until you see companies obviously lining up for an IPO. And then, you know, not only is it you know, make the governments more challenging the private companies, but then you've got this mad, mad dash where, you know, you're like, oh man, we've got, we're, we're trying to get on file in the next six months. You know, I've got to go hire, you know, four board members in that time period. And so I just think that's bad. It's just bad generally because look, you know, these are important positions and, you know, you're, you're, you're likely to make mistakes if you're basically trying to kind of, you know, hire multiple people in a short period of time for the purpose of being able to actually comply with your S1 obligations. I think that's uh, that, that's a very interesting comment. Um, you know, you, when when we um, worked at the at Stanford, we 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 also thought about one other avenue of increasing diversity to these boards would be by bringing independent directors, because you know, to the extent that venture capital you know, partners or you know founders were not diverse, it's very different to public markets where you have more leeway to pick and, and, ch and change the ratio. So I find this is a, a, a very interesting side of, of, of private corporate governance. So talking about the evolution of markets, talk about the rise of these private markets and, and how you've seen the venture industry change with new entrants like you know, hedge funds, private equity funds, sovereign wealth funds, mutual funds. I mean, this is, is, is a very different scenario. Uh, you know. How do you think about that? Yeah, this is definitely also, you know, when we talk about changes in the industry, this is probably one of the most profound changes over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years in the industry, which is this dual phenomenon of fewer fewer IPOs and when IPOs happen, happening much later in the life of the company. And as a result, also, therefore, or in combination with that, more financing that would have happened in the public markets now happening in the private markets. And, you know, you mentioned some of the names, of course, you know, big firms like SoftBank, of course, but, you know, just lots of traditional public market investors who are now seeking private market opportunities, whether that's, you know, the hedge fund community or the mutual fund community, 
Um, a number of you know sovereign wealth funds and large you know just institutional investors. Period. Look for these direct investing opportunities to kind of augment their their private equity, uh, you know, partner relationships. So it's been a huge huge change. And um, look, it's got enormous implications. Probably to me, the most foundational implication is uh, it dramatically changes kind of the wealth accre- accumulation opportunities for public market investors relative to p- private market investors. And you know, you and I, you and I have talked about this, and I've written about this which is appreciation that historically would have happened in the public markets now increasingly is happening in the private markets. And as we know, obviously, just given kind of the way the securities laws work today, therefore, the availability of that appreciation is limited to people who are either, you know, kind of accredited or qualified in their own right, or who are, you know, underlying shareholders of these institutional or beneficiaries of these institutional investors. And, you know, that's much more, that's much less democratic, certainly than the basic idea that anybody could go buy a stock of a company in the public markets than they would like. Um, I think the other big implication is it does um, it does really highlight the the these governance challenges, right? So it's one thing, you know, when you've raised ten million or twenty million dollars or something to kind of you know have you know potentially common controlled boards and and you know uh, lesser independent directors. We've talked about it's another thing when you've raised billions of dollars and now you've got you know kind of you're you're almost quasi public right, in the sense right. that you have you know. You have lots of underlying investors. You have, you know, we have the rise of secondary markets, of course, where, you know, those shareholders, the distribution of shareholders starts to get more, more diffuse over time. And so, you know, I think what it, I think what it probably likely means is for our industry is it will require a more concerted and, and probably more mature governance effort as those companies go up that, go up that scale. Um, And we've already seen, you know, even just from the SEC on the kind of enforcement side, I think, you know, kind of their willingness to step in. In an area where historically they probably wouldn't have, right? And obviously there's some, you know, pretty pretty strong, uh, you know, egregious examples of bad behavior, whether that's things like Theranos or others. But mm-hmm. but even in lesser cases where there are uh, there is concern that kind of did did the investors in these you know kind of in these very later stage deals did they have the kind of information disclosure that they sh- that they would have expected just given obviously the magnitude and the scale of what they're doing? Um, I think you will see the SEC push for you know potentially more disclosure. Uh, in those circumstances, and make it clear that even though these are not public company investments, obviously that there is probably you know more opportunity for higher degree of uh, kind of standardization and and disclosure in connection yeah. with some of these some of these offerings. Yeah, and I think you, I share the, the same opinion. I think, uh, and I've written about it as well, where you know these unicorns are really kind of like quasi-public and thousands of employees, billions of dollars, you know, operating in hundreds of different countries. So it's really interesting the governance side of it. You know, they've got multiple stakeholders, so it looks very much like a public company, but they are under a governance of a private company. Um, so, so you know, one area that I think is is very interesting is. <clears throat> the crypto networks and and how you think crypto networks can uh, change or replace traditional corporate governance. You wrote an article uh, recently about uh, the purpose of corporations, and you talked about shareholders, stakeholders, and customers. And at some point in the article, you gave an example. You, you used a fictional, you know, a company like Airbnb, but you know, with tokens. And and I think that idea is excellent, and it's it's a very innovative idea in corporate governance it replaces you know whatever 400 years of corporate governance that we have with a different model but but maybe introduce this concept because i think this is very very exciting i think sure yeah let me talk a little bit about it and uh and uh, as you say look uh, these are sometimes we write things that are kind of intended to be thought-provoking pieces yeah, and uh, yeah and uh you know that was certainly the case the, the, so let me start with the basic foundational argument. Uh, as you know, right, there's all 
kinds of people taking new views as to what is the role of the corporation, right? This is obviously a really uh, important topic. And, you know, there's kind of, you know, there are there are lots of people in the middle, but of course, there are these two kind of camps at either end, which is, look, the job is to maximize, you know, the value for the common shareholders. And, you know, the other end is look like this kind of, you know, call it stakeholder, you know, mm-hmm. governance, right, which is that you have to maximize for lots of different stakeholders. So there were two arguments I was trying to make in that piece. Number one is, I actually think there's more consonants in these issues than people believe, right? I don't think, you know, I don't think either of the extremes is right. I think my current view is under prevailing, you know, my interpretation, at least of the general kind of corporate law is boards of directors have tremendous discretion to be able to make decisions that, you know, kind of may look like they are more ESG or stakeholder decisions, but that ultimately, you know, have long-term, you know, kind of have long-term shareholder value. So a simple example that I mentioned there is, um, I think I mentioned this was at the time I wrote the article, you know, Microsoft made some statement or, and maybe it was Amazon uh, that, I think it was Microsoft, that they were going to invest $200 million in Seattle to improve housing alternatives, you know, for the local communities, right? And someone could look at that and say, why is why is Microsoft doing that? That's terrible. That doesn't help common shareholders. It's a waste of time. Um, my current, my, my general view, though, is look like that's perfectly legal and permissible under existing corporate law, which is they made a decision that, okay, um, customers care about these things and our constituents care about them. And so if we do something good, number one, that will have value to the company and that might accrue to the common shareholders. And two, but by the way, we are a big employer in the Seattle area. So it's selfishly in our best interest to actually have more affordable housing because we might reach some you know, kind of uh, limit to our growth in the in the industry if we can't actually attract employees to work here. And I don't know if they had any of those conversations or not, but I, I raised the point, which is I think there are so many things that companies do that can address stakeholder things that also are completely resonant and, and consonant with their goals of, of shareholder value. So that was kind of part one I was trying to make in the article is like, I don't think these things are diametrically opposed. In fact, I think there are there are all kinds of things. You know, the other thing I mentioned uh, I happen to sit on the uh, the, the uh, investment committee for St. Jude Hospital. Um, you know, they they there are a lot of corporations who donate money to St. Jude Hospital. And again, one might argue, like, why is Target or somebody giving money to a nonprofit? That's completely you know that's money that could go to shareholders. But I think they rightly so make the make the determination as a board that okay, donating to causes like this, you know, resonates with our customers, our employees, and others, and therefore that that enhances shareholder value. So like, I, I think those are all the same. So the crypto thing is interesting to me in that, okay, there's two issues in crypto. To me, the big one is this constituent question, which is um, one of the big arguments that I think people make around, you know, kind of these new, uh, you know, kind of formulations of, of, of shareholders and stakeholders is there are lots of people who contribute to the success of the company who are left out of the economic rewards of the growth of that company. And, you know, I, I think you're right. I use the obvious example of Airbnb, which is, the presence of hosts in the Airbnb community are an incredibly important constituency. And you see this in the way that Brian and team manage the organization is they, they are very in tune to that. And they, they do lots of things that are intended to improve the their relationships with the host community. But if you had imagined, you know, if 10 years ago when Airbnb started, they had actually, you know, started as a crypto organization, they could have also had a very pure economic incentive to align themselves with those hosts by effectively giving those hosts kind of, you know, at the time would have been some fictional, you know, token basically. But the idea behind the crypto token is that as the value of the organization, the community grows, all the holders of those tokens, of course, benefit from the appreciation of that of that value. And so you can imagine an argument that says, hey, like, you know, the first 1,000 hosts in Airbnb were incredibly important to the success of the business. 
why shouldn't they have the ability then to participate in the overall kind of appreciation of the value of the opportunity over time? And so crypto is in some ways a way to, I think, democratize access to wealth creation for people who are part of the foundational uh, building of the companies. In some ways, it's not that different from how you think about, you know, giving stock options to early employees in a company, right? We recognize their value and they're important. This broadens that concept to additional to stakeholders outside the pure employee base, given obviously the new business uh, natures that are out, uh, you know, formations that are out there. So to me, you know, I don't know if it's the end all be all from a corporate governance perspective, but it's it's one way to address this stakeholder thing. Um, and, you know, from a more broad corporate governance perspective, um, you know, the other attractive thing that I find about crypto uh, is, you know, everybody who is a is a holder, a, a, you know, of those tokens has the ability to kind of and understands what the governance mechanisms look like. So, in other words, you know, we don't have dual class structures in crypto, right? Or we don't have boards of directors that are essentially kind of largely making decisions on behalf of shareholders. It's, you know, this. I don't want to. I don't want to sound, uh, you know, too hokey about this, but it's the closest thing to a pure democracy in that respect. Right. Is it's not representative democracy. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I think the election of board directors in public companies is far from representative democracy. There's no question about that. So this is kind of like grassroots democracy, which is, you know, if I care about crypto project X, uh, you know, I can basically own the token and I have a stake in that in the governance that's transparent and clear, just like any other holder does. Well, what's interesting is, is in some cases, they, they, they put it in the code, the governance of a certain crypto network is going to be X, Y, Z. And it's kind of like the open, uh, decentralized version of people doing private ordering in the space. And there's a lot of experimentation. And I find it uh, very interesting but you know another challenge that I see a lot of the people involved are engineers and have a view of you know x you know it has to be in a certain way and people who do governance look at this corporate governance and say no this is all crazy right so there's a lack of discussion among engineers and lawyers or corporate governance practitioners and it's a it's a new field but I feel it's it's kind of very interesting and I know that Andreessen has a new fund and and you kind of at the forefront of of setting it out. So I encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast to to start thinking about uh, crypto as another alternative. Okay, so so let's move into a, a set of rapid fire questions. Uh, this is to know you more personally. So we we move off the, the the governance questions and you know what are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life. Yeah, uh, this is a really weighty question, so I don't know if I will do it. Uh, so I, as for me, at least there were two, mm-hmm. one of which, one, one I'm sure probably almost nobody, but maybe you have heard of. Uh, one is there's a book called The Lost Lawyer by Arthur Cronman, who was a, hmm. used to be a Harvard law professor. I think he was at Yale. He might be retired now. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason it was influential to me was it describes kind of this uh, idea of lawyer as business counselor um, mm. and also des- describes how the modern conception of a law firm has dramatically changed that as you move to things like billable hours and other stuff like that. And so it was influential to me in that kind of that was my conception of what I wanted to be as a lawyer and a the harsh reality of probably what the likely market looked like. So that changed my opinion about actually right. being a lawyer. The lost lawyer. Exactly. So that one's interesting. And then uh, the other book, I, which I've said before I love, is a, a book called Master of the Senate, which is about LBJ. Uh, there's a whole series of, of, of uh, LBJ books. But and, you know, obviously, particularly apropos, uh, given some of the circumstances that we're going through, you know, in the world today. But, you know, his what was really interesting to me is just a, an incredibly depth, deep understanding of the political process, 
and you know how to get something in particular the 64 Civil Rights Act uh, you know kind of through what was a what was you know just you know required incredible kind of negotiation skills and political skills in his part so those are a couple that I highly recommend if people are okay. interested. Okay, these are very uh, fun. And and by the way, I always add these in the, in the show notes so people can okay. can access them. Uh, you know, the other question I, I can guess who they were, but uh, the question is, who were your mentors and and what did you learn from them? Yeah, I mean, look, I've been lucky. I mean, certainly, look, I've worked with Mark uh, Andreessen and Ben Horowitz for going on twenty one years now, so it's hard not to uh, call them mentors, even though I'm not sure they would. I'm not sure if they would accept that title. <laughs> Uh, and, and, uh, but look, I mean, I've learned an enormous amount from them. Um, I had an early mentor, actually, I grew up in a, in Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. had an early mentor who was a family friend, a guy named Armin Weinberg, who, um, his job was he, um, uh, worked, uh, at the, the medical center in Houston, which is obviously a pretty established uh, area and did, uh, basically kind of, uh, research in around all kinds of cancer prevention. And his kind of goal in life was to publish this research as well as to encourage, physicians and, and individuals to understand the importance of things like early detection of cancer. And the reason he was a mentor to me was, you know, he was just a guy at, who at a very early age for me just gave me responsibility that I never should have had, you know, like he enabled me to literally write academic papers with him and enabled me to interact with, you know, like the Surgeon General of the United States at various points in time, stuff like that. And so it, it, he was a he was an informal mentor in the sense that he just kind of basically his view was look like, you know, there's no reason why you can't do anything, basically. And, you know, we all kind of create, you know, we all have our own conceptions about where we fit the world and what we should do. And so just as somebody who really kind of encouraged me to not um, think about uh, kind of what you couldn't do, but just basically said, look, just jump in there, do it. And, you know, your work's going to be judged on the merits of its work, basically. But uh, but it was somebody who certainly was very influential in uh, in okay. my early career path. That's that's very good. And are there any quotes that you think of often, or you live your 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 life by? <laughs> uh, so I'm reading this. I'm reading this new book about the uh, history of John Maynard Keynes right now. Uh-huh. And so I, I've always loved the his quote, which is, you know, in the long run we're all dead, as, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, right? So if anybody who's an economics person, of course, right. there's always short term and long long run, and uh, you know, of course everything works out perfectly in the long run. But of course the problem is we're all dead in the long run. So. That's always interesting. Unless uh, we extend our lifetimes and we... That's exactly it, right. And maybe, maybe that'll happen. But yeah, yeah. what is interesting to me about that is actually, I do think when you, when you decompose it is, it is a good lesson in life, which is, look, um, you know, we're kidding ourselves if we think what's actually going to happen 5, 10, 20 years from now on so many areas. And a lot of us try to plan our lives according to that. And I'm guilty of doing that myself. And look, the reality is the short term is the only thing that you can probably predict and also probably the only thing that matters because uh, not only are we all dead in the long run, but we also, we have no way to predict what's going to happen in the long run. So how I does think, that translate to governance? We just went from long term to short term. Exactly. Well, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, that's a good point. So I have to, I'll have to rethink that. That's a bit yeah. of a cognitive dissonance I hadn't figured out yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Yeah, I don't know if this qualifies, uh, but as, as some people, as many people know, uh, I I wear cowboy boots to work every day, and uh, and I'm a diehard country music fan, and so uh, in in Silicon Valley, at least that is, that would qualify as an unusual habit, and as something that probably would uh, definitely unusual or or absurd, you would say? No, uh, I yeah, don't think. <laughs> might be maybe not absurd, but definitely unusual for sure. Okay, uh, and and which living person do you most admire? Yeah, you know what, I I really struggle to give you an answer on this one. Um, uh, you know, I could say something colloquial that probably that, uh, you know, wouldn't go right. Look, I, I don't know that I I don't really view, I, I guess I don't view the world that way. Like, look, I think there's all kinds of people who have done great things and I admire them. I, I think at the end of the day, look, I'm a huge believer and in, uh, in, you know, teams and organizations. And so, 
look, you know, leaders matter and other stuff, but I, I do, I'm not one for kind of, you know, hero worship uh, mm-hmm. in terms of people. So uh, I'm going to deflect your question and basically say, look, I, uh, I actually am a much big believer in movements and organizations and people and, and, teams, you know, teams. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about who's my most favored uh, yeah. living person today or, or dead person for that matter. No, I like it. I mean, I think teams are, are, are very important and, uh, you know, obviously you've, you've been part of a, 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 I would say a winning team, but a, a team that has built something that is very valuable. And, uh, you know, I, I want to thank your time. I think, uh, you know, always talking to you about governance is, is great and particularly governance of venture back companies. I mean, I remember back, you know, whatever, 2012 or 13, when we started this program specifically targeted for directors of venture back companies, there wasn't much out there. I mean, really, I mean, if you look at the research, there's not that much research in comparison to public boards and, and, and the fact fact that now you wrote a book and I think now there's more and more literature or different people that are uh, thinking about this. And the reality is private markets are becoming bigger. So the boards and these companies are get, getting more relevant. So so this is great. And uh, of course, crypto is kind of the next frontier. So maybe we'll, we'll move into the next chapter of governance in the crypto markets. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, I, I appreciate the time and uh, always, always fun to talk with you and talk about these topics. And uh, Hopefully, uh, we'll get some good feedback from your listeners. (laughs) All right. Thank you, uh, Scott. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast with your friends or colleagues. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast at www.boardroom-governance.com.